0: It's roughly 9:20 a.m. on a crisp November morning in New York City. and air traffic control at JFK International Airport receives a radio call from an unidentified pilot. Now look out to the south of the aircraft crashing. Say again. The aircraft, aircraft just to the south of the field. An aircraft fireball. The, the controllers look out their windows and see a huge black ball of smoke. 9/11 was barely a few weeks ago and after all the security measures, another airliner full of civilian passengers had come down. Could there have been a bomb that slipped past security? Everyone who saw the plane crash, especially those close to the crash site, were absolutely convinced this was another terrorist attack. But was it though? Was there another terrorist attack after 9-11 you've never heard of? Welcome back to AirScare Stories. Today we'll be looking at the crash of American Airlines Flight 587. It's the 12th of November, 2001, a beautiful sunny day with perfect weather for flying. American Airlines Flight 587 is a regularly scheduled passenger flight from JFK International Airport in New York to Las Americas International Airport in Santo Domingo, the capital city of the Dominican Republic. The aircraft for this flight was an Airbus A300, which was delivered to the airline in July 1988. The plane had a two-class seating configuration with a capacity for 235 passengers in economy and 16 in business class. A total of 251 passengers were expected on board the plane that day. The captain for the flight was a veteran captain named Edward States. But today he wasn't going to be actually flying the plane. Instead, the 42-year-old captain would be the pilot monitoring and dealing with radio communications, while his first officer, 34-year-old Sten Molin, would be at the flight controls. The flight's departure had been delayed by about 30 minutes due to the recent events of September 11th, which had left everyone in the city and around the world really on high alert passengers had been checked twice to make sure no one posed a danger to the flight. At 9:11 a.m., wait, really? 9:11? Okay, at 9, 11 a.m., Japan Airlines flight 047, a fully loaded Boeing 747, takes off from JFK just ahead of American Airlines flight 587. They follow immediately behind the 747 and line up on the runway in preparation for takeoff, and are advised of potential wake turbulence from the huge jet by air traffic control. Wake turbulence is a byproduct of the way air flows up and over the wing of an aircraft. The air at the tips of the wings forms a vortex like a sideways tornado. And since there are two wings, every airplane that's flying is generating two counter-rotating vortices which trail behind it throughout the entire duration of the flight. As you might imagine, these can pose a real danger to any other aircraft that pass through it, especially if the leading aircraft is much bigger than the one that follows it which is why air traffic control is constantly warning pilots who are waiting to take off to be aware of possible wake turbulence from the plane ahead of them. Flight 587 took off at 914 AM without any problems. At about 915, the captain made radio contact with the departure controller, stating that they were already at 3,300 feet and climbing to 5,000 feet. They were then instructed to climb to and maintain an altitude of 13,000 feet. But just a few seconds later, the plane runs directly into the wake turbulence of the Japan Airlines 747 that they'd been warned about. Although it does pose a danger, it's usually not significant enough to cause any damage to the plane or any danger to its occupants. It does cause a hell of a bumpy ride though. So First Officer Molin, who's flying the plane, quickly tries to correct the situation to keep the wings straight and level. He uses the control yoke, as well as the foot pedals, moving the rudder from right to left and back again in quick succession, trying to get through the powerful wake vortex. This is certainly not his first time handling a situation like this. All pilots are taught about wake turbulence and how to handle it effectively in the air. But this time something horrifying and completely unexpected happens. They hear a deafening bang coming from the rear of the plane, and then First Officer Molin suddenly realizes he's losing control of the plane. No matter what he does to the controls, the airplane starts to pitch downwards and enters into a flat spin. In a state of complete shock, Molin shouts, what the hell are we into? Captain States replies, get out of it, get out of it! The spin is so violent that the resulting forces tear both of the engines off the wings. A few seconds later, the plane slams to the ground at Newport Avenue and Beach 131st Street on the Rockaway Peninsula in Queens. The two engines crashed to the ground several blocks north and east of the main wreckage site. One of them fell near a gas station, but thankfully it only caused minimal damage. The other one, not so much. It crashed into a house and caused major damage to a boat that was parked nearby. Immediately, some people on the ground start running towards the wreckage to see if they can offer any help, while others frantically call 911, fearing another terrorist attack is taking place in New York City. On getting to the wreckage site, it quickly becomes evident to rescuers that none of the passengers or crew members aboard the flight could have survived this crash. All 260 people aboard the plane were killed in the blink of an eye. Even worse, it's later discovered that they weren't the only casualties. Five people on the ground were also killed by the airplane's sudden dive. In the Dominican Republic, the friends and family of the passengers are slowly informed of the crash. You can imagine how awful it would have been for them to receive such devastating news especially for those waiting there at the airport. Several questions remained on everyone's minds after the accident. What could have caused a perfectly functioning airplane to lose control and just drop from the sky? What was that explosion that multiple people reported hearing? And was this another 9-11 style terrorist attack on the citizens of New York City? An NTSB Go team is deployed to find answers within an hour of the crash. Right from the afternoon of the accident and for the better part of three months, they meticulously investigated the case collecting and reassembling the basic form of the plane's structure, and conducting almost 350 interviews with eyewitnesses to the crash. They ruled out a terrorist attack right from the start, based on the lack of any evidence for one. That is, until they went through the cockpit voice recordings and heard the sound of the explosion just before the crash. This made the blood in their veins run ice cold. But, after carefully comparing the time of the explosion on the cockpit voice recorder, to video footage of the flight's last moments captured by local CCTVs and security cameras, they weren't able to see anything that looked like an explosion at all and concluded that it couldn't have been a bomb that brought this plane down. Recovery teams were busy gathering debris from all over the city, and one of them found something completely unexpected in Jamaica Bay. The entire detached tail of the plane was found floating in the water, completely intact. Now finding the tail of a crashed plane completely intact so far from the crash site was completely unprecedented. Tails don't just fall off of airplanes, at least they're not supposed to. This finding put Airbus in a very uncomfortable position, as the NTSB suddenly became concerned about the safety of the Airbus A300's rudder system design. The tail, or vertical stabilizer, on the A300 is connected to the fuselage at six attachment points, with each having two sets of attachment lugs. One set of lugs was made of aluminum, The other out of a strong composite material, and they were all connected together with titanium bolts. These were some of the strongest materials available back then, and the A300 was one of the few commercial planes using them. So could there have been some unknown problem with the design of these attachment systems? Or maybe with the tail's assembly procedures? Well, the investigation's damage analysis revealed that the aluminum lugs had remained intact, but the composite ones didn't fare as well. The investigators became concerned that the composite materials might not have been strong enough to hold the plane's tail onto the rest of the fuselage. Given the fact that these same composite materials are also used in other parts of the plane, the NTSB recommended that immediate further testing be carried out on them to make sure they were able to safely perform their required tasks. At the time of this accident, there were about 240 other Airbus 300 planes flying around the world, and they might all be in danger of suddenly losing their tails in turbulent conditions. But interestingly, after exhaustive testing, it was determined that the composite materials on American Airlines Flight 587 hadn't failed because they were too weak or had been structurally compromised. They only failed because they'd been stressed beyond their design limit. So apparently airline components aren't designed to endure all possible scenarios in normal flight? That's cool. That's cool. The fact that the composite lugs had experienced forces greater than they were designed to handle makes the NTSB investigators turn next to the information on the flight data recorder. What they see there leads them to conclude that the first officer's actions in response to the wake turbulence was what caused the composite lugs to fail and the subsequent separation of the vertical tail section. They determined that the first officer had been too aggressive with his rudder inputs. Given the speed at which they were traveling and the force of the air flowing against the rudder, His aggressive inputs put an excessive amount of stress on the plane's vertical stabilizer, first all the way to the left, and then all the way to the right, and then back and forth like this until eventually the forces were too great and the tail sheared off completely. This was the real reason they'd actually ended up losing control and why the vertical stabilizer was found in Jamaica Bay, over a mile away from the main wreckage site. One of the saddest things about this accident is that according to the NTSB, the first officer's aggressive control inputs were actually what made the plane move in such a wild manner to begin with. He may have thought he was fighting the wake turbulence, but he was actually fighting himself. The NTSB believes that if the first officer had simply stopped making inputs, the plane would have stabilized all by itself. So how could a pilot with extensive experience flying large commercial airliners not know this? How could he fly a plane in a way that would rip off the tail and send it crashing to the ground? Was he incompetent or stupid or what? Well, further investigation by the NTSB revealed that first officer Molin had been known to have the tendency to be aggressive with his rudder inputs. Colleagues who'd previously worked with him said that he was essentially a well-skilled pilot with the exception of some pretty bafflingly aggressive rudder pedal inputs. One even said that Molen had been so aggressive on the rudder pedals when they'd been flying a Boeing 727 together, that he thought they were experiencing an engine failure. When asked about this, First Officer Molen told his colleagues that he'd been trained at the American Airlines Advanced Aircraft Maneuvering Program, or AAMP for short, to do this. Wait, could he really have been taught to make these heavy-handed rudder pedal inputs by his own airline's training program? the attention of the investigators then turned towards the AAMP, which was a series of lectures and training scenarios developed to give pilots the necessary skills to recover from situations that they wouldn't normally encounter during normal flight operations. These included inverted positions, nose high and nose low upsets, steep bank angles and wing stalls. The investigation brought to light the fact that the simulations run in these training programs were often not entirely realistic, which led to pilots making exaggerated control inputs In order to regain flight stability, the exact thing that the first officer had done on flight 587. So basically, this tragic accident occurred because the airline had incorrectly trained its pilots to aggressively use the rudder pedals when encountering wake turbulence. In the aftermath of the crash, the Allied Pilots Association submitted a report to the NTSB claiming that the rudder on the A300 was extraordinarily sensitive to inputs, and that this sensitivity wasn't mentioned anywhere on the American Airlines training manuals. Which might explain the co-pilot's actions on flight 587. When this became public, however, it led to a heated exchange between Airbus and the Allied Pilots Association. The association argued that Airbus should have told them about the unusual sensitivity of the rudder system. Airbus replied saying that it was American Airlines fault for failing to train its pilots properly on the characteristics of the A300's rudder. They further argued that tail fins are typically designed for full deflection in one direction when the plane is below its maneuvering speed not to withstand multiple abrupt shifts from one direction to the other. It's pretty effed up to think that the second deadliest aviation accident in the United States could have been avoided if just a bit more care had been put into pilot training and proper sharing of information between aircraft manufacturers and the airlines that fly them. In the end, the NTSB finally stated the official probable cause of the crash as the in-flight separation of the vertical stabilizer as a result of the loads beyond ultimate design that were created by the first officer's unnecessary and excessive rudder pedal inputs. Contributing to these rudder pedal inputs were characteristics of the Airbus A300 rudder system design and elements of the American Airlines Advanced Aircraft Maneuvering Program. But what do you think? Should the first officer be the one held responsible for this accident, or was he just following his airline's official training protocols? Let us know in the comments section below. If you like this video and want to help me so I can keep making more, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Link in the description. Hit those like and subscribe buttons, and let me know if there's an aviation story you'd like me to cover on the channel. Thanks so much for watching, and I'll see you on the next Air Scare Stories.